The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. For those of you who haven't been with us, we are going through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 13, which is actually a little bit past the midway point. It's the longest book in the New Testament, written by Luke in the 60s AD, probably about 25, 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Luke was the friend and ministry partner and personal physician of the Apostle Paul. And after getting many eyewitnesses and doing personal research and having his own personal experiences, he wrote down an account of the person in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, the longest book in the New Testament. And it's just been a, a glorious study, isn't it? We are now in chapter 13. Where we are now is we've seen three years of Jesus' public ministry. He was in obscurity and silence for 30 years, and then he was baptized by John, the Baptist, and the Spirit of God, and then that launched his public ministry. And we've seen his ministry primarily in Galilee, where he grew up in Nazareth, which is north of, up in northern Israel, north of where the temple was down in south in Judea, Jerusalem being the capital city. Jesus grew up in Nazareth and Galilee, so that was his home stomping grounds, and so much of Luke covers the ministry of Jesus in his home area in the uh, city of Nazareth, but primarily in the whole region of Galilee. And we've seen pretty much so far three years of Jesus' public ministry. He, he just went everywhere. He infiltrated the entire area of Israel, preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom is at hand, uh, revealing himself as the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, gathering uh, disciples, but from those disciples, training up future leaders of the church that he will plant on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 after he goes back to heaven with his 12 apostles. They will be the foundation of the church. And so Jesus is really pouring a lot of time and energy now into the future leaders of the first church, which would be the 12 apostles. And that's the emphasis we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke here from chapter 13 to the end of the book. He's concentrating his efforts now, moving away from the masses and the multitudes to his select and chosen 12 apostles who will be his ambassadors. Three years of ministry, doing miracles, preaching, being public, being gracious, being kind, calling people to repentance, but being kind to everybody, no discrimination, healing all those who are in his path of miracles, supernatural miracle after supernatural miracle. Everybody saw it. It was done in broad daylight. No one could deny it. All the while claiming that he was the Son of God and came from the Father directly from heaven. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. His message was clear. What he did was clear. His person was clear. And even after three years of doing this to the nation of Israel, Israel, the people of God, according to the Old Testament, predicted all of this would happen, that God would, Yahweh, send a Messiah just like Jesus. Jesus fit the bill in every conceivable category as the qualified Messiah, and those that should recognize it first and foremost should have been the leaders of Israel, the Jewish leaders, which would be the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But that isn't what happened. For three years, they basically resisted Jesus, were threatened by him, and began a concerted formal effort to snare him, that they might trap him, that they might accuse him, that they might arrest him, that they might execute him that they might get rid of him. That's the leadership of Israel. The, the ones of all people that should know this is indeed the Messiah, Jesus. So that's what Jesus has been contending with for three years. Just pretty much ongoing, continual resistance from the leadership of Israel, his own people all the way down. It's been trickling down, few here and there, giving him praise, most of it ignorant or shallow, superficial ill-informed, not quite sure. Even some of his apostles were suffering from that to the last day. So Jesus knows he has a fickle mob on his hands. Of his own people, Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, people of the book, he, he knows the heart of man. That's what John 2 says when he began his ministry. He didn't cling to, gravitate towards this praise from men. He didn't want it. He didn't accept it because it says in John 2 that Jesus knew the heart of men. He had no faith in the faith of of man, that's what it says. So that's what Jesus has been dealing with for three years. And so this all comes to a head and culmination here in Luke uh, chapter 12 and 13. 
Uh, we have been going through the longest sermon or discourse by Jesus in the four Gospels, save the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, both of those in Matthew. Next to those, this is the longest discourse or sermon that is recorded in Scripture. And it is loaded. We've seen it. We've been going through week after week, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. And today we're finally going to finish it. And that's chapter 13, 1 through 9. It's all one long discourse, one continual sermon, one public uh, situation where Jesus was addressing the crowds, the multitudes. Um, so, And it was different probably from the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, which were very long, in that this may have been the largest audience that Jesus has ever addressed at one time. Because Luke chapter 12, verse 1 said, as he began to teach, this is outside the, the outskirts of Jerusalem. Somewhere it was sponta- a spontaneous gathering of tens of thousands of people. This was not a planned event. Did you get your ticket? Yeah, I got my ticket. Wrote th- no. Spontaneous gathering as the crowds just began to swell. And it literally says tens of thousands, tens upon tens of thousands of people uh, gathering around to hear this rabbi, to hear with curiosity, fascination, maybe I'm going to get free food or a miracle, to listen to this Jesus, this rabbi from, not Jerusalem, but from Nazareth, a Galilean. And they're crushing one another, the mobs, crushing one another, as they're trying to hear Jesus. So he went through this whole sermon, and now we have the conclusion, chapter 13, 1 through 9. As we've gone through it, we've seen that Jesus talked about many different themes uh, throughout it, but I offered last week that I think there is a unifying theme in light of all the different topics that he addressed throughout, and it was warning. That's the one unifying theme that I talked about last week. It's clear. I think it's clear in the scripture there. Warning brings it all together, and today we're going to see how when Jesus ends his sermon, he brings it to a close, still in keeping with that theme of warning, warning humans, warning the crowd, warning the Jews, warning people, warning sinners. First of all, he is not a sinner. Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. He's the Savior. He's God. He's God in the flesh. He is not a sinner. He's unlike Anyone in that crowd, everybody else is the same in terms of they were born in sin, conceived in sin, enemies of God at birth, hostile, haters of God, unless they're born again. That sets Jesus apart from all of them. That's why he speaks with such unique power and authority. He is not like them. He is God Almighty. He's holy. He represents the Father literally in a way that no one else can. That's who's addressing them, and hence this message of beware or warning. Warning, warning, warning. So, uh, and if I were to summarize the entire message of what Jesus has been saying, and just distill it all down, you could go back to chapter 12, verse 1. As he begins, and he spoke to the crowd, the tens of thousands of people, and the first word out of his mouth was, beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So that's his message. Beware of the Pharisees. That's the theme that is fleshed out through the entire thing, literally all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. Beware of the Pharisees. That's his thing. It's not just beware. It's not just warning, watch out. It's beware of something specific, and that is the Pharisees. Beware of the Pharisees. But it's even more specific than that, because you could say, beware of the Pharisees. The next question is, well, what about the Pharisees, right? What about the Pharisees? Well, he's clear. It's beware of the religion of the Pharisees. That's the warning. Beware of the spirituality of the Pharisees. Beware of the false religion of the Pharisees. Beware of the deceptive, all-pervasive false religion of the Pharisees. Be- beware of the Pharisees' attractive False, shallow, superficial, man-made religion because it is utter hypocrisy. That's the warning. And as an alternative, he, he gives all this divine, supernatural, special revelation that is given through him that came from the Father and from Old Testament Scripture. And instead of this man-made religion that is quintessentially represented through the Pharisees who have man-made religion mixed in with the Bible and they dominate the country and they dominate your lives and they dominate the temple and they dominate your synagogues and they dominate enterprise and economy and everything else in your life. Beware of that. Flee from that. It's false religion. It is man-made religion is what it is. 
That's what he's saying. And replace it with biblical religion. That's why he went through point by point. Don't fear them. Don't fear the system. Fear God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the true God. Fear him. And bow the knee to his son, the son of God, the son of man. Confess his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, he will not confess you. And embrace his Holy Spirit. This is all in this sermon. Embrace true religion, fearing the true God, bowing the knee to the triune God of the universe. And also recognize that you are sinful and confess your sin to this one and only true God who can save you and rescue you from your sin. This is the message Jesus has been preaching. Beware the, the false religion of the Pharisees because it is shallow, it is surface, it is legalistic, it's a front, it's a facade, it's veneer, it's all show. It's all to entertain men. It has no depth. It's outward. It's not about the heart, which is what true religion is about. That's what he's saying. And he said this in many other places all throughout his entire ministry for three years. This is false religion. By the way, um, embrace God's supernaturally revealed religion, which is in the Word of God, the Bible. And if you don't accept true religion given by God in Scripture through divine revelation, you will automatically revert to the false religion of the Pharisees. Even if you, didn't, even if you don't live 2,000 years ago, even if you're not a Jew. Because there's only two religions in the world. There's true religion and false religion. There's divine religion initiated and given by God, which is Old Testament religion and biblical New Testament Christianity. And the other alternative is just man-made religion, regardless of all of its manifestations. It's all the same. It's all super, uh, superficial, surface, shallow, man-centered. I'm okay. I don't have to deal with sin. Pleasing men, smothering the biblical truths that God has revealed. Works righteousness. I earn God's favor. Is There is a God by my good works. It's all the same. So this isn't just a warning for the Jews that lived 2,000 years ago, beware of the Pharisees. This is a warning to all people of all time. Uh, beware of man-made religion, whereby sinners born naturally think they can earn the favor of God with works righteousness. And that impugns every single one of us. It doesn't matter what your religion is. You can be an atheist and an agnostic. Uh, you could be a Muslim. You're believing the same thing. It's man-made religion, working your way to God to get his approval. You could be a Roman Catholic, a Greek Orthodox, same thing, man-made religion. You could be a Calvinist and the same thing. If you're not biblical, it's man-made religion. You could be at a Baptist church doing the same thing, trying to earn your favor with God through false religion, man-made religion, externals, instead of what God has said, the issue of the heart. It's all show. That's man-made religion, and that's what Jesus is getting at. Beware of the Pharisees and their superficial, shallow religion. That's what they were like, the Pharisees. They were all shell. It was all external. Man looks at the outside, says the book of Samuel. They were experts at that. On the outside, it's like uh, Jesus would say, you know what the Pharisees are like with their religion? They're like a fig tree, big, blossoming, green, Looks like it's thriving. By the way, they're everywhere in Israel. They dominate Israel. They infiltrate the land at every turn. There is the big green fig tree. But it's supposed to produce fruit. And you go up to the certain fig tree, and there's a fig tree there that doesn't have any fruit. It's a fruitless fig tree. It's got empty promises. Looks good, and it doesn't offer what it's supposed to produce. It's shallow. It's superficial it's literally what is that fig tree doing that doesn't produce figs that it's taking up space is what it's doing it's completely worthless a completely worthless fig tree that doesn't produce fruit should be cut down it should be cut down and burned well that's what jesus said about fig trees that were like that several times in the gospels that's actually how he ends this sermon today as he uh Gives one last warning, one, get, one last opportunity, but one last indictment to those who would not believe him, those who wouldn't embrace him, those for three years who have been rejecting him, seeing his miracles and rejecting it. I said, okay, uh, you know what, Israel, you know what unbelieving Israelites in this audience, you remind me of a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit. And the day is coming when that fig tree is going to be cut down. Cut down, and then in uh, Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, not only cut down, but thrown into the fire to burn forever. So that's 
a summary of Jesus' message. It's beware of the false religion, man-made religion, works righteousness religion of the Pharisees. The leaven of it. The, the, he calls it leaven. It's like leaven because what does leaven do? Leaven influences. Oh, so subtly, but oh, so influentially. Subtly, little by little. Creep, it creeps in everywhere. The leaven of the Pharisees. Pride, man-made religion. Gets into, it gets into the good stuff, into good religion. That's how dangerous it is. That's how damning it is. Beware. Watch out. of man-made, poisoning religion. So that's the theme. Let's look at Jesus' conclusion to this discourse or this sermon. Now we pick up at chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 9. And let's just read. Uh, what do we, the last thing we read was Jesus was giving warnings um, to them after he gave. It was kind of, it's kind of an evangelistic sermon. Here's your status. You're condemned. You can know God. He can forgive you. Repent, bow the knee to him, embrace him, and the Son of Man and the Spirit, and truth, and he'll embrace you as a child. He'll provide for you. He'll meet all your needs. You can trust him. But if you reject his Christ, if you reject the Son of God, there will be consequences. There will be con- There is a day of reckoning. If you don't embrace the one true religion, that's what he's preached. That's where we left off, and he actually left in very sober warner, uh, sober warning in chapter 12, verse 59, when he basically said, if you reject Christ, you reject what I'm saying, you're going to end up in eternal hell forever. Eternal prison, that's what he said. That's verse 59. That's how he ended. Verse 59 didn't end in the sermon. But at chapter 13, verse 1, now there's a break in the sermon. So Jesus preaches this long sermon. We don't know how long it lasted. But we do know that it was interrupted at least three times while he was talking. He's publicly teaching, discoursing, proclaiming at the top of his lungs. And he's interrupted at least three times, maybe more. But Luke lets us know the three people that interrupted him. First was this rude person that just kind of shouted out in the middle of his discussion. Teacher, tell me, uh, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. You know, tattling on his brother, tattling on a family member publicly. Everybody, how embarrassing is that? And Jesus said, no, I'm not, I'm not your judge. And then Peter interrupted a little later and said, Jesus, you're telling a bunch of condemning parables. Are, are those for us or somebody else in the crowd? That was the second interruption. And then there's the third interruption that we're going to see today, or the, the third kind of transition in the sermon. That's chapter 13, verse 1. We'll look at that. But in light of this theme of warning... Um, so just to get more specific, what has Jesus been saying to this crowd, these ten, this maybe 50,000, 60,000 people? And they're Jews, they're Hebrews, they have an Old Testament, they know the scripture, they were raised in the synagogue. Probably the majority in this crowd are Judean Jews, because that's where they are. Those Jews that grew up near Jerusalem, near the temple, that's probably the majority of the crowd. There are some Galileans who came down, who were a part of this crowd. They may be the minority, the Galileans. The apostles were quasi-Galileans, having been with Jesus, many of them raised in Galilee. And then the Jews of that day, uh, the Jerusalem Jews, prided themselves on being um, Jerusalem Jews or Judean Jews. So they, they were prejudiced towards fellow Jews who lived up in Galilee. It's very important. It's very obvious in this passage, by the way. So these Jews, they're already arrogant and prideful because they were Jews, because they were the elect of God, because that's what the Old Testament said, right? God loves us. God doesn't love the Gentiles. We are clean. They are dirty. That was kind of the predominant attitude towards Jews. Well, Jews had towards anybody who wasn't Jewish anyway, and then that was compounded and made even worse with the Judean Jews down there by the temple is, yeah, those Galileans up north, you know, that mixed breed, those compromisers, kind of like quasi-half-breeds up there, those Galileans, the ones that don't have access to the temple, the ones that have to come down here to our temple to use our temple. So they were arrogant. They had a chip on their shoulder. They didn't have the right attitude towards Galilean Jews, many of the Judean Jews. We know that for a fact. By the way, Jesus was one of those compromised Galilean Jews because he was born and raised in Galilee. And the leaders of Israel, his critics, the enemies, they like to accuse him of being a Galilean. That's what they said to Peter when Jesus got arrested. Oh, yeah, you, you hung out with that Galilean, didn't you? That's what they called Jesus. It was a term of derision. But if you're a Galilean Jew, that's, that's fine. You're still part of Israel, people of God, the elect. 
the theocracy bound by the book of Moses. So you shouldn't be discredited just because you're a Galilean. But they were. So that's really important to know that background. Uh, so anyway, so here's Jesus, the Galilean, the Galilean, preaching down in Judah to tens of thousands of Judeans. The Galilean guy, not uh, the Judean scribe. A different kind of rabbi, not trained in our schools. Kind of a foreigner on our home turf. Jesus, the Galilean, preaching in this crowd. And he's speaking with authority like they've never heard before. And here's just here's a summary of statements that he made as they're listening. Fear God because he might kill you. Chapter 12, verse 5. That's how he opened up. I bet you that got their attention. A few verses later. Confess the Son of Man or he will not confess you in the afterlife. Chapter 12, verse 8. A few verses later. God could kill you tonight in your sleep, as a matter of fact. Chapter 12, verse 20. Then he says, the Son of Man is returning to judge in the future at any time, and you don't know when. So God could judge you immediately, your time could be near, or, okay, fine, it's not near, it's not imminent, then it's coming, it's inevitable. It could be when the Son of Man returns in glory and in a rage of fire. Daniel 7, chapter 12, verse 40. So that's God the Father who could kill you at any time. And has the right to do so. And the Son of Man, who has the right to banish you from heaven for all eternity. Because he has the right to do so at the end of the age. But even now, Jesus said in chapter 12, verse 40, that the Son of Man was there to cast fire upon the earth. Chapter 12, verse 49. Cast fire upon the earth. I came to cast fire upon the earth. I came to bring judgment. Me. And chapter 12, verse 46 and 48, Jesus in that little parable said, by the way, at the end of the age, every single person is going to face accountability. And if you don't repent and turn to God and turn to Jesus, uh, you will be punished. You will be punished with he will, the Son of Man. He'll cut you to pieces. He will slice you to pieces. That's Jesus' terminology. That, that is graphic. That is gruesome. And he will flog you. He will whip you. You will be punished. And then chapter 12, verse 58, he ended with, we already alluded to it, that if you don't repent, God could throw you into hell forever. Judgment is coming. Judgment is certain. This was Jesus' entire sermon. Those are his points of emphasis. You can just connect the dots. Well, chapter 13, verse 1. Let's read it. You hear all these somber, frightening warnings about judgment and death from the creator of the universe. And here's what Luke says, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, or while he was preaching, or while he was teaching, right there to the tens of thousands of people, at that very time, that very day, that very moment, there were some there present in the audience who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Okay, I don't want you to just kind of let that sink in. If you're reading this for the first time, it's like, well, that's kind of weird. What does that mean, and what does that have to do with anything that just happened in chapter 12, verse 1 through 59? It seems completely out of context and connected with nothing that came before it. That's on the cursory first reading. That makes sense, but that's not true. It's completely related. Let's keep going. So I'll just read verse 1 again because that's the critical verse in this passage. Now, on this very occasion where there's tens of thousands of people, there were some present. There were some people present there. We don't know who they are. They came to Jesus. They must have had to fight to get there. Remember, people were stepping on each other, crushing each other, trying to get to Jesus. Tens of thousands. Somehow, these guys made it. Who knows they, who, who they walked over to get to Jesus, who they trampled on. And they reported to Jesus about the Galileans... The Galilean Jews, remember that, that's important. The Galilean Jews up north, not as good as the Judean Jews. I have a suspicion that some of these people were Judean Jews. It's just a hunch. That's uh, cliffology. <laughs> Reported to Jesus about the Galileans, Galilean Jews, whose blood Pilate, the Roman, 
pagan, Jew hater, Gentile, had mixed, the blood that Pilate had mixed, with their sacrifices. So these were Galilean Jews. Sacrificing at the temple, verse 2. And then Jesus said to these some Jews, whoever they were, from the crowd, Do you suppose? He says that two times. Verse 2 and verse 4. Do you? This is a rhetorical question. Jesus isn't looking for an answer. He already has an answer. This isn't a rhetorical question to reveal their thinking and to impugn them, to condemn their thinking. Do you suppose that these Galileans, these Galilean Jews, were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate at the hands of Pilate? Verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4, and Jesus goes on, or do you suppose... That those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam, right here in Judea, bringing you local now, that's where the tower of Siloam was, near Jerusalem. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits or debtors than all the men who live in Jerusalem because they didn't get killed in the tower? Destruction? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he tells a parable, verses 6 through 9, uh, to bring home the point. And he began telling this parable. Here's the parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any fruit on the fig tree. And so the owner says to the vine keeper, or the vineyard keeper, the guy taking care of the fig tree, the owner of the fig tree, He has the right to talk to the gardener. So the owner says to the gardener, uh, Behold, what's this? For three years. For three years. Where are we now? We're in the third year of Jesus' ministry. Literally, three years. But he's not talking about his ministry. He's talking about a fig tree. But just so you know, Jesus has been three years in the ministry preaching and teaching to the Jews, who in the Old Testament are described as a fig tree of God in his vineyard. Just so you know. Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? It's taking up space. There's a sense of irritation here. He's perturbed. Uh, Verse 8, and then the gardener answered the owner and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, uh, let's, let's let it alone for now, sir. That's a term of respect. You're, you're the owner. It's your fig tree. But here's a suggestion since I'm the gardener. Let it alone for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit, but if not, cut it down. Give it a little more time. Master, can you give it a little more time before you vent your wrath? Can you just give it a little more time, a little more grace, a little more time? That's the parable. So, uh, again, what I just read, verses 1 through 9, the parable, the comments by Jesus, uh, are still consistent with that theme of warning, warning, warning. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Turn to God. Turn from false religion. Turn from your own superficial assessment of yourself that you don't need a Savior. Warning, warning. Warning. Let's look at. I provided a three-point outline for you there, just to help you through this narrative. It's it's difficult sometimes to outline a narrative, but at least this will help us with the the flow of thought because there is a dialogue and exchange of information. Uh, so I, I gave you an outline uh, on your bulletin there. Verse one is the first point, and that's the implication reported to Jesus. The implication I call it, and then there's verse two through five. That's the interrogation issued by Jesus. So the implication that they make, the interrogation, his questions, verses 2 to 5, and then finally, 6 through 9, is the illustration, and the illustration of the parable. Uh, Or a simpler outline, if you wanted one, is verse 1 is the problem. And it's literally the problem of evil. I don't know if you've ever heard of the problem of evil, but that is the most... Uh, profound challenge to theism and Christianity in particular, supposedly, that the unbelieving world has mustered over the course of 2,000, 
500 years, all the way back to Epicurus. So there's the problem, or the problem of evil, verse 1. And then there's 2 through 5 is the prompt. Jesus prompted them. What's a prompt? It's when somebody gives you a suggestion to do something. What's Jesus' suggestion? What's his prompt? It's repent, verse 3 and verse 5. Repent, that's key. You guys, you've missed the point. Your focus is totally off. Here's the issue. Repent. Repent. That's a command. It's an imperative. He says it twice. He says the exact same thing in verse 3 and verse 5. Repeat it. So there's the problem that they raise, the problem of evil, which they're trying to inform Jesus about. Oh, by the way, you probably don't know about the problem of evil and the solution. We have it. Here it is, Jesus, Mr. Rabbi from Galilee. They don't know what they're getting into. Uh, Jesus solves the problem of evil that no one in the history of the world has been able to, to solve, by the way. We'll see that. And then he, he, he gives his prompt in response to that. Two to five. And then the parable. So you got the problem, the prompt, and the parable. Parable is the illustration just to flesh out what he's saying and what his, his command or prompt is. So let's look at it. Uh, just the details of this text. Uh, Jesus issuing this warning, starting at verse 1. Verse 1, you've got to understand verse 1 because otherwise you don't get verses 2 through 5, that exchange. Like we already said that verse 1, so Jesus is talking about warning, 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 repent. If you don't, you're going to end up in hell forever, verse 59. And then all of a sudden, verse 1. Now, on that same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And you're like, what? Luke, why are you putting this there? Oh, okay, maybe this is a total uh, literary transition on Luke's part to direct us in a totally different direction to talk about something totally unrelated in his gospel. And No, that is not the case at all. What they said in verse 1 is completely related to everything that Jesus just said. Jesus went on for 59 verses saying, Beware, beware, beware. Warning, warning, warning. Watch out, God might kill you. Watch out, the Son of God might bring you to judgment. Watch out, you might end up in hell forever. And their answer in chapter 13, verse 1, you know what it is? It's yawn. That doesn't apply to us, we don't care. That's how verse 1 applies to everything Jesus just said. That's their attitude. Yeah, 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 you're talking to somebody else. You're not talking to us. You're talking to Galileans. Yeah, maybe this is pertinent to them, all that warning and judgment stuff. Doesn't apply to us. And not just any Galileans, but these Galileans who got killed by this calamity that came out of nowhere. This problem of evil. It doesn't apply to us. Well, McManus, how do you get all that out of verse 1? Well, from verse 2 through 9. The context makes it really clear. That's what they're saying. That's what they're implying. They're bringing up the age-old problem of evil. Trying to give Jesus an education about the problem of evil. You know what the problem of evil is? I'll just remind you. Some of you know. Some of you may not have really heard of it. It's a formal argument against Christianity. It is called the most formidable argument against biblical Christianity that has ever been articulated or delineated or thought of. And it completely stumps... The Christian does not have an answer to the problem of evil. That's what unbelievers say. That's what skeptics say, agnostics say, atheists say. Richard Dawkins says. Bill Maher says. I could go on and on. That's what they say. We have no answer to the problem. That's the silver bullet that does Christianity under. They haven't been able to answer it for 2,500 years. Well, they're wrong. What is the problem of evil? It's real simple. It's a syllogism. But basically it's... So if God is good, like you Christians in the Bible claim he is, all good, perfectly good, perfectly loving, is what that means. If God is all good, and he's at the same time all powerful, he can do anything, as you say, especially you Calvinists who say God is completely sovereign. If God is all good, and God is all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Because there is nobody denies there's evil in the world, right? Evil of all kinds. Too much evil, superfluous evil, senseless evil, unexplainable evil, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching evil, natural evil, moral evil, catastrophic evil, man-created evil. All kinds of evil. Just think of the nature of evil. Why? Wow. Babies born completely deformed, blind, and on and on. 
senseless, utterly senseless. If God was good, he wouldn't want that to happen, truly. A baby born with deformed and blind? So maybe your God isn't good after all. Or maybe he's not powerful. Maybe he's not all-powerful. Because if he is good, okay, granted, your Christian God is good. And if he's all-powerful, he could stop and prevent these evil things. And he wouldn't let babies be born deformed and maimed and blind. So that maybe your God isn't, maybe your God is good, but he's not all powerful. Or maybe it's a combination of both, that your God is not good after all, and your God is not all powerful. Therefore, the God of the Bible doesn't exist in light of reality as we see it. That's the problem of evil. Ching, gotcha, Christian, Bible believer. Now, what's really sad, so we can understand this kind of argument coming from unbelievers and atheists and agnostics and skeptics. What's really sad is when you read all the apologetics books about all the world-class, renowned, know-it-all evangelical Christian apologists trying to deal with the problem of evil, and rarely do they come up with the right answer. You know what many of them say? Is, yeah, man, they're right. We don't have an answer. I mean, I could start quoting. Uh, quote, uh, the Bible doesn't seem to tell us why there's evil in the world. End quote. That was R.C. Sproul, dealing with the problem of evil. I'll say it again. The Bible doesn't seem to tell us why there's evil in the world, end quote. Thinking, no, no. It, the Bible is, talks about evil from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to Revelation 22. Uh, the Bible is the encyclopedia of evil. God is the expert on evil. The Bible clearly tells us why there's evil and the solution. So we don't have time to go into all this, but that's the problem of evil. And then if you read all those books on apologetics and Christian philosophy, searching for the answer to the problem of evil, because Christians are in a panic because we don't have an answer to this. Here are the five, here's the five main solutions that Christians or theists propose to this problem. And they're all wrong. They're not biblical. But I'll just read it real quick. Uh, they propose that, number one, here's the answer to the problem of evil. This is the best of all possible worlds that God can make. He almost get, That's the best God can do. Uh, number two, um, out of love, God wanted to preserve our freedom. And because God loved us as free creatures and not robots, he allowed us to have a choice and therefore we had to be allowed to choose evil. So out of love, God wanted to preserve our freedom. That, that is not the correct answer why there's evil in the world or why God allowed evil. Number three, uh, this, these guys are just honest and blatant, but they profess to be Christians, evangelical Christians. It's called open theism or process theology. And they just say God doesn't know everything. He's just kind of surprised. He's grown like everybody else. Thank you for your honesty. Complete heresy. Uh, number four. Here's another one uh, that tends towards Arminian theology, and that is that God does not control everything. He's not completely sovereign like you Calvinists say he is. In other words, he's not all-powerful. He is all-loving. He is all-good. And that's their solution to the problem of evil. They're trying to get God off the hook. We need to defend God and get God off the hook, by the way. And then number five, uh, I just quoted one, and this is pretty popular, actually, evangelical theologians saying, you know what, um, that, yeah, you're right. The Bible just doesn't tell us why God allows evil. Just doesn't seem to tell us. Tim Keller says, wrote a whole book on the problem of evil. That's his answer. Bible, ah, yeah, it just doesn't tell us why God allowed evil. Well, just let me read a couple of verses, and I think it makes it clear why God allowed evil. You ready? Proverbs 16, verse 4. Here's, this is the biblical answer to the problem of evil. And there are theologians who've written on this and made it very clear. Uh, start, and they use the Bible. Proverbs 16, 4, quote, The Lord, Yahweh, has made everything for its own purpose. He has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. I mean, if you just pick one verse to solve the problem of evil, that's it from God's point of view. Uh, another one, Romans 8, 28. We know, we as Christians know, we know those who are not Christians, they don't know this. That's why they believe in the problem of evil. They don't know this truth because it doesn't apply to them. But we know, Christians, we know. We know how God works. We know what God has revealed. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, even the bad, the wicked, and the evil, right? God works all things, including the evil, for good. To those who love God. So somebody asks, well, why is all this evil in the world? Why did God allow all this evil in the world? The simple answer, according to the Bible, is because he's going to use it for good. 
Romans 8.28. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, it says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. He is completely sovereign. He's in control of all things. Uh, John 9.3, problem of evil. Uh, the disciples of all people, the apostles, the Jews, uh, they didn't understand the problem of evil. Well, they had a solution to the problem of evil, and even the apostles, because it was prominent in their day, this is probably what the Pharisees and Sadducees believed about the problem of evil. And their solution to the problem of evil was bad things only happen to bad people. That's what these, these Jews in Luke 13, 1 believed. That's what they're telling Jesus. Yeah, we heard what you said about all the warning and the judgment and the, God's going to kill people. Oh, but didn't you know, Jesus, the problem of evil? The answer is bad things only happen to bad people who deserve it. Like those Galileans that got slaughtered by Pilate. That was their solution. And that is the apostle's solution to the problem of evil in John 9, where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. He was born blind, and he was blind for decades, and then Jesus instantly healed him. But when Jesus saw the man who was born blind, the apostles, the disciples, asked Jesus, Jesus, who, who is sinful that this man is born blind? His parents or him? And their thinking was, evil, bad things happen directly as a result of sin. Sin you did or sin somebody else did. That was their solution. In other words, what they were saying was, uh, bad things happen only to bad people. Bad things do not happen to good people. Bad things do not happen to righteous people. And we know that's not true. But that was their theology. That's the theology we're seeing here. That Jesus is going to just dismiss and dismantle. And that's why in John 9, 3, in response to that, Jesus said, um, well, actually, God allowed this evil to happen. Not, it had nothing to do with anybody's sin. His parents didn't sin. It had nothing to do with his sin. It has nothing to do with man's sin. It was a sovereign choice made by my God, my Father who is in heaven, so that, quote, that the works of God might be displayed in this blind man. That's why God allowed evil in that situation. God was totally in control. He wanted to display his glory. That's why he allowed the evil. So God has a purpose. And if you really want to make it simple from a biblical point of view, just take the greatest, most horrific evil event that ever happened in the history of the universe, and you would have to say as a Christian, that was the murder of Jesus Christ, right? That was, there is nothing more evil, heinous, wretched than the murder of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more unjust than the murder of Jesus Christ. And then in the next breath, I need to ask you, what is the greatest, most beautiful thing that ever happened in the history of the universe? The murder of Jesus Christ. God works all things, all evil things, together for good. That, that's the greatest illustration of it. That's the answer. The answer to the problem of evil is answered in Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the Bible, by the way. So with the background, and just so you know, their thinking, their theology, and where Jesus is going, uh, let's go back to chapter 13, verse 1, and following. We'll just walk through that passage and just kind of flesh it out. So on that same occasion, verse 1, he's preaching. It's the end. He gave his crescendo, uh, but he's not done because they come up. It says, it doesn't quote what they said. It doesn't even say who they are, so we don't know who they are. We do know they are uh, probably Jews because they were in that audience there. And they're picking on the Galilean Jews. So they could be Judean, self-righteous Judean Jews. And they managed to get to Jesus. And they reported, they're, they're giving Jesus instruction is what they're doing. They're not asking him a question. Oh, Jesus, don't you, didn't you read the Jerusalem Gazette? Recently? You don't read the headlines? That's what they're doing. Newsflash. Current event. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody seems to know about it. It makes everything you just said pretty much irrelevant, Mr. Rabbi from Galilee. At least for us. Some were present and they proposed or reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. Well, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He was a puppet governor appointed by Tiberius, the wicked uh, Caesar of Rome. Pilate went, his reign was from like 27 to 37, so it overlapped with the end of Jesus' life, 27 to 37. Uh, Pilate, he was wicked, he was evil. Uh, he had a notorious reputation as being a total pagan and everything that goes with that. A megalomaniac, hungry for power, uh, prone to theft, robbery, harassing the Jews. He hated the Jews, by the way, anti-Semite. He was a coward. There's much that's been written on Pilate, and we get a peek of this even in the gospel. That's who he was. 
he was ruthless. He had freedom from Tiberias to pick on the Jews. He lived in Caesarea a few miles away. He didn't live in Jerusalem by the temple in Caesarea, right there on the ocean of the Mediterranean. See in his palace. But no doubt during feast days, Passover, when Jews from all over, pilgrims, would converge on Jerusalem and the temple, and the city of Jerusalem would just swell up literally with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews from all over the world. Pilate was responsible to Rome to keep the peace. We can't have all these rabble-rousers, especially these uh, zealots, these Jewish zealots, stirring the pot up anytime there was a big gathering of Jews around feast day. And so Pilate uh, would. He'd get his garrison, he'd get his Roman soldiers, they were armed and they'd come in and they'd push people around and they would keep the peace. Well, it got out of hand apparently one time in a recent event here because we don't know a whole lot about this other than what's reported here. That Pilate goes in and invades the Jewish uh, religion and their worship during feast time because it says when their sacrifices were being made. So that probably, it could very well have been during Passover or a feast like that. If it was during Passover, there were two million Jews in Jerusalem at the time, converged on the temple, and for an entire week they were slaughtering animals in the temple. And it was like a slaughterhouse because estimates were over 200,000 animals were being slaughtered that way. 200,000 in the temple. And there weren't enough priests that the actual sacrificer was getting involved and helping the priest sacrifice that animal. There is blood everywhere. But this is the most righteous, worshipful deed you could do to Yahweh who required death because of sin. And there's blood being shed all over the place. Well, Pilate's upset somehow. We don't even know the details of it. But he goes in there and he interrupts Jewish worship, probably in public because there's a report about it. And even going where Gentiles aren't allowed to go, close to the altar and slaughtering these uh, devout Galilean Jews who were there on pilgrimage to make a sacrifice in obedience to the old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, right there in public, having left their families behind, by the way. Yeah, we'll be back after Pentecost. Mazel tov, shalom, see you soon. And Pilate, in a capricious whim, in public, slaughtered these Galileans who were in the middle, while they were making sacrifices on the temple, that their blood splattered over onto the sacrifices, and blood is just everywhere. It, it was horrific. Everybody knew about it. Everybody was talking about it. And so that, they bring this up to Jesus. And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows their interpretation. He knows their twisted theology. And that's his response in verses, so after the problem, the problem of evil, he goes, oh, okay, you want to talk about the problem of evil? I'll talk about the problem. I'll tell you what the real problem of evil, and that's your sin. That is the problem of evil. And what's even a greater problem is if you don't repent to God of your sin. That is the greatest problem of evil. You Facing hell is the greatest problem of evil. That's the only thing you need to be focused on. Repent. Repent. He says it twice. Repent. Meta naeo. Change your mind. Change your thinking. And primarily change your thinking about who you think you are. Your pride. You don't need a savior. You don't sin. You don't sin in a way that deserves the wrath of Almighty God. You need to change that thinking. That's what repent means. And that was the command that he issued. By the way, this was the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth when he began his public ministry. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1, and John the Baptist came preaching and he opened his mouth and he said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And everybody flocked to John the Baptist and got baptized except for who? The Pharisees. Did you know the Pharisees, they didn't get baptized by John the Baptist? They refused it. They were prideful. They didn't think they had any sin. They were good with God. We're the elect. We're okay. We're sons of Abraham. We're in. And then you look at Matthew chapter 4, and the first words of Jesus are the same thing. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus came preaching and teaching, and he said, Repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom is at hand. So this was Jesus' consistent message. You are sinful, you are wicked, there's only one way to be forgiven. It is through me, because I'm the only one that can lead you to the Father who is in heaven. I'm the only one that can deal with your sin. You can't deal with it yourself. Your religion won't help. Your religion will make it worse. Your religion will give you greater accountability before the judgment seat of God. 
So that's why we go to verse 2 through 5. Now after the problem of evil, Jesus says this. Here's the prompt to repent. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose, and I said uh, that this was a rhetorical question. He already knew the answer. Do you suppose, and he says it twice. Do you suppose, and do you suppose, verse 2 and 4. And the word there is think. Do you think, do you, is this really your opinion? And he knew it was. So this is what you're thinking. So this is your idea. So this is your theology. So this is what you're saying. So you're, you're impugning these Galileans who got slaughtered by Pilate because you think they were worse sinners than you. They got slaughtered because they were sinful. They got slaughtered because they deserved it. That's what you're saying, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you really suppose this? And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Boy, what a twisted, perverted, distorted, godless view of the problem of evil and, and sin and why bad things happen. I tell you, and he says it emphatically in verse 3, I tell you, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, and then he turns the tables on them. Here, you're trying to impugn the Galileans who got slaughtered by Pilate, um, but I'm turning the, my guns at you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Death is coming. Doesn't matter when or how. Maybe it was spontaneous, it was an accident, it was a calamity that couldn't be explained. But death is coming and it's coming to you. And like I've been saying for 59 verses, you better repent and get right with God. Verse 4. Then he, gets, he takes him one step further. Okay, granted your scenario about uh, these Galileans that got slaughtered by Paul. I'll give you another one. I, I do read the headlines, by the way. I read the Jerusalem Daily News, verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam, that Siloam was an area in Jerusalem. It was local. Okay, I'll take you in your own backyard. I'll take you in your own backyard. I'll take, and I'll take you to people who are even more uh, infected and sinful and worse than these compromised Galilean Jews. Let's talk about some uh, Romans. Let's talk about those who labor and work for Pilate and are on his payroll. You can't get lower and worse than that. And this was a recent event that happened that Jesus is referring to um, in verse 4. Do you know, or do you suppose that those 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So what happened? We know this from history and the text here, that Pontius Pilate, was, he liked to build stuff. He liked to rob the Jews from their treasury, take that money and build stuff in Judea. And he was building an aqueduct that ran from the Pool of Siloam and probably had a scaffold reaching sky high. And he had his workers, and we don't know who they were, but he hired them and on his payroll. And the scaffolding apparently gave out, and, there were, and it fell over, and 18 people got killed on the work site. Spontaneous accident. Freak accident. And Jesus refers to that. Oh, you want current events? Here's a current event. It just happened. So are you, do you suppose, do you really think that those 18 people who died in this freak accident that we can't explain? The, the Twin Towers that go down in New York and 3,000 people died? Do you think that they, they died that day because they're more evil than everybody else in the world? Is that what you think? That's wrong. You think these 18 people died in that tower because of that? Because they're, they're in debt to God? They're worse sinners than everybody else? Verse 5, I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the parish isn't just physical death. Physical death, by the way, uh, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. So that is the penalty for being a sinner. So you better repent. You're going to die anyway. If it's not tonight in your sleep or at the end of the age when I return again, it will happen in your lifetime. You will die. We don't know how, but it's certain. You don't know how, but it's deserved. You don't know how, but you'll face judgment. And you better bow the knee to Christ in this life because you'll have to do it in the next life whether you want to or not. So you better repent. So to bring it home, he now, after the problem and the prompt, saying repent, repent, he gives the parable, an illustration, to conclude what he's saying to them in his entire sermon, to wrap it all up. Uh, this repentance to these individuals who asked that question, but really the entire nation, everybody in this audience needs to repent, and the entire nation of Israel needs to repent because you've rejected me for three years, after being warned for over a thousand years through prophecy that I was coming as your Savior and Messiah. You need to repent. Here's the parable, verse 6 through 9. And he began telling this parable. It's just a story with one main point, so don't remember that. When you're doing a parable, it's just one simple main point. And he uses universal terminology that everybody on planet Earth, regardless of when you live, will understand. 
That's the beauty, the mastery of Jesus' teaching. It's not esoteric and ambiguous. It's clear. The beauty of a parable, simple as can be. An illustration that even a young child could understand. So he's telling this little story. A man had a fig tree. Uh, I would propose that the man is God, representing God. He had a fig tree, uh, and the fig tree many times is the nation of Israel, the blessed people, the elect people, the privileged people with all that divine special revelation, the covenants of God. Paul outlines in Romans 9, 1 through 5. They were just a privileged people. So God had a fig tree, not only the nation of Israel, but every, every individual it applies to. People ask at times, how do I apply this passage, Pastor Cliff? How do you apply a narrative story? That's a challenge. How do you apply a narrative story that happened 2,000 years ago to people on the other side of the world that weren't us? Well, the first thing you do is you look for the universal truths in the passage and you apply those. And there are many here. This parable is universally applicable to every human soul. Because it's God who is the one who owns the fig tree. He owns everything. And a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. That's weird. Or that's unique. That's rare. You don't plant a fig tree in a vineyard. A vineyard is where vines grow. That's where the land is very carefully toiled and tended and fertilized and watered and watched over and weeded and nurtured. And You don't give that kind of care to a fig tree. Fig trees grow everywhere. Out of the side of a rock. They're everywhere in Israel. I remember when we lived in Santa Barbara. The big fig tree down in Santa Barbara on the street in the city. Shouldn't be growing there. It's huge. It's massive. It's got beautiful leaves, all kinds of shade. People hang out under that fig tree. Why is it in a vineyard? Because it's, giving, it's been given special care and nurturing. It's been given privilege. We've heard about privileged people. I think we could say biblically that the Jews were privileged people. These Jews, in light of Romans 9, 1 through 5, they're the fig tree and they're not just growing out of the side of a rock. They're in a vineyard that's taken care of by a gardener every single day, giving it TLC. Uh, and so the owner comes to the fig tree looking at it, and he wants, he's hungry, he wants to eat the fruit, and he doesn't find any fruit on this fig tree. He's mad. He's upset. He's frustrated. This is God. Jesus comes to Israel so that they might welcome him, and for three years they get a stiff arm. He is upset. He is frustrated. He is not happy. He is angry. He is also brokenhearted. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over humanity. So the owner says to the gardener, Behold, wow, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Nothing. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? It's taping, taking up space. Get rid of it. And Jesus is saying, I've got my orders from God the Father. I've been here three years. I'll be here six more months. I will continue to plead with sinners to come. I will kiss or let Judas kiss me. I will give him the sop at dinner as my best friend. Calling him and wooing him to repentance to the last minute, to his last breath. That's the Savior, the gracious, patient Savior. That's what this parable is communicating is God is gracious, God waits, God gives sinners time, time. That's one of the greatest gifts of common grace that God gives to all of humanity is time. Because we should be snuffed out because of sin. But we live until tomorrow, that's the grace of God. Cut it down, get rid of it. And so then uh, verse 8, the gardener says, this could be Jesus interceding with the Father, we don't know. But it's likely he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer, can we give it a little more time? Maybe they'll come around. Maybe they will produce fruit finally. Maybe Israel will turn to the Messiah. Maybe these hardened Pharisees will bow the knee to Christ. You know that happened in the book of Acts? They didn't during his entire ministry. And, and then the Spirit comes in the book of Acts and finally it says that some of the Pharisees were getting saved. Isn't that awesome? Some of the Pharisees and the scribes. Finally, not the majority. Father, forgive them. Jesus said on the cross and God answered that prayer and some of them got saved. Cut it down. And then he pleads for mercy and more time. And verse 9, and if it bears fruit next time around or in the future, literally is what it says, but, but if not, then cut it down. And that's exactly what happened. This is true of every individual human soul. Your time is running out. My time is running out. If we don't know Christ, today is the day of salvation. If you're not a Christian, now is the time to bow the knee to the Creator. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. 
or you will be cut down and suffer the consequences that have been delineated by Jesus in this entire sermon. Eternal separation and condemnation that is conscious, it is physical, it is horrific, it is eternal, it is deserved. But you can repent and turn to Christ and be saved from it all as he absorbed the wrath of the Father in his own body on the cross, as a substitute for sinners who believe. A gracious gift. Can't earn it. Can't work for it. Don't deserve it. A gift of grace by faith. It's the good news. That is the good news. And that's the end of Jesus' plea. We should all take that to heart. Let's go to the Father and pray. Father, we do thank you for our time together and the truth of your word. We thank you that it speaks truth. You help us through your Holy Spirit to understand it and apply it and then even truths that are hard, that don't sit well with us. God, we need your help to meditate on it and truly understand it and then bow our knees to it in submission to welcome your word, not resist it. Maybe even our thinking needs to be changed in some areas, God. You're always teaching us, so help us to be teachable. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the gift to the world, because of your love for sinners, that they don't have to suffer an eternity apart from you and damnation, but can know you even in this lifetime just by faith, believing in your good news, the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you all the praise and the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.